news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to remind you about the Deep Dive Workshop Series we've got coming up from the 31st of January until the 4th of April, in which we will have 10 amazing speakers who will be presenting about various aspects of craft, as well as the business side of publishing. Now, after each presentation, we'll host an hour workshop in which you'll have discussions and do writing exercises so that you can learn to apply what you've learned. You'll be sorted into a new group each week, so you'll get a lot of different feedback on your work, while also making new writing friends who can potentially become beta readers or writing group friends. If you're in a different time zone, don't worry. The recording of each session will go out the next day, and you'll be able to connect with other writers in your time zone so that you can set up your own breakaway sessions at times that suit you using the workshop prompts we'll send on. Now, if you want to kick off 2023 with a new commitment to your writing, this is the perfect way to do it. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com and go to the deep dive page to sign up. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Cece, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Cece, The Witches of You Woods 
is a 70,000-word upmarket speculative fiction with elements of historical fiction and magical realism. With its dual timelines and multiple points of view, the work resembles the narrative structure of Just Kids, The Night Ship, whereas the magical elements, the love story, and the strong female characters will appeal to fans of V.E. Schwab's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. Besides, my novel features a witch trial, like A.K. Blakemore's The Manning Tree Witches. Ugal, Ireland, 1661. Florence is on trial for witchcraft after a lifetime of hardship and hiding. Only 350 years later does she get a chance to heal the past through Linda and Helen, who face their own trials as a lesbian couple. My manuscript is inspired by Florence Newton, historically known as the Witch of Ugal. Some of her trial records from 1616 are missing and therefore her eventual fate remains unknown. The Witches of Yew Woods weaves Florence's story together with the life of Linda, a clairvoyant research assistant for philosophy in the present time, and her partner Helen. When they move to Ugal, Linda receives disturbing flashbacks of the past, which point her in the direction of Florence's story. Meanwhile, Linda's relationship with Helen suffers from a deepening conflict. Helen wants a child, but Linda has a dark secret that could destroy their love forever. The couple threaten to drift apart, and it first seems that Linda's obsession with Florence exacerbates their crisis. Then Helen and Linda piece Florence's story together, and they make an astonishing discovery. Perhaps in finding closure with the past, they can also heal the wounds of the present. I'm the author of the poetry book Illuminations at Nightfall and the winner of the Luane Poetry Press competition. My short fiction was long and shortlisted in contests such as Cranked Anvil and Onyx. My work is published in The Moth, Goat's Milk, Bridget's Gate Press, Tir Nanog, and elsewhere. I've been honing my craft in my writing group, as well as in workshops with poet and novelist Redacted. I hold a BA in English Literature, Sociology, and Politics. When I'm not writing or reading, I work as an English teacher in a secondary school. Many thanks for your time and consideration. Kind regards, Christina. Great, Cece. Thanks so much for that. Okay, will you give us an indication of word count and then tell us what you thought of the query letter? This is around 400 words. Let's begin with the first paragraph. There's a line, the very last line reads, besides my novel features a witch trial like A.K. Blakemore's The Manning Tree, which is, I don't quite think that's enough to merit a comp. Like, I love the fact that there's a witch trial, but that alone does not necessarily a comp make. So since you already have appeal to fans of and the narrative structure of, I don't think you need a third one, if that is the only reason. When it comes to the plot paragraph, right, like the, the, the big one, there's still a lot of behind the scenes. There's still a lot of pausing to take a step back to offer a big picture note. For example, my manuscript is inspired by Florence Newton, historically known as the Witch of Ugal. And this is after us getting a little bit on Florence. So I thought we were going to go like on that hero's journey and understand what her hero's path will be, what obstacle is facing her, what escalation happens. But instead, we kept pausing to learn about the fact that, you know, her the true records from, from her life are missing, which all these things are really interesting. But I don't think that you should put them in the plot paragraph. So I would just keep this as a true plot paragraph. Let's read about her journey, inciting incident, central conflict, climax, etc. I would also just reconsider the vagueness. There are a few lines that I thought were quite vague. 
which point her in the direction of Florence's story. I didn't understand how. A dark secret that could destroy the love forever. Make an astonishing discovery. So I did think that there was a little bit of vagueness and I would reconsider that. I really like the author paragraph. And thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was in those opening pages? We have Florence's point of view. It's 1628. She's in the woods. She hears a sound. It's a man. And this man is very dreamy. And she starts feeling all the feels. And she knows that this is a big deal, knows that this is going to change her life. And then we have Linda's point of view, only one page of that, because then obviously the author respected our five page limit. And she's sitting at her desk. Helen is opposite her and her mind wanders back to the first time she saw Helen. So that is what happens. Great. Thank you. Okay. What was your take on them? So I like the fact that there are timestamps. I like the fact that we're very clear on whose point of view we're in, what's happening on the page. I do wonder if there's more room for emotionality and interiority. I wasn't quite sure what she was feeling and thinking, especially when Florence ran into the man. His name is William. So I kept highlighting moments like, does she think she's in danger or is she amused? And I think I should have a sense of this because otherwise, like, why am I in her head? So I do think there's room to explore that. And then the other thing, this is a matter of taste, but there's a line that reads, something's happening to her. Florence can feel it. William Ruddy didn't cross her way for nothing this morning. There is no such thing as coincidence, only fate. And there's there's a few more lines like this, meaning she knows that it's a big deal that she ran into William. She doesn't know how she knows this, but she knows this. I struggle with this. I struggle with the protagonist knowing that something is a big deal with no logical reason. I don't understand how this is possible. And in Linda's point of view, this happens as well, but through flashbacks, since she's thinking back to the time she first saw Helen, there's a line that reads, there was something special about her that Linda couldn't quite figure it out, but it was magnificent. She felt drawn to her presence, sucked into a vacuum. There was a powerful energy. I do understand she's clairvoyant. So perhaps that's how she knows it's such a big deal. But at the same time, it does strip away the tension, right? Because if the protagonist is so certain and isn't surprised, and there's no real reason other than their feelings, and we just met them, I worry that it's hard for the reader to really get on board and feel alongside the protagonist and feel with the protagonist. So it might be a matter of taste, but that's something that I would reconsider as a big picture decision in your manuscript. Definitely something for you to think about. And thanks so much for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's go to your first query letter. Dear Carly and Cece, Jeanette Harking lost her chance to compete at the London Olympics when her husband died. She's resolved not to let anything stand in the way of redemption at the 2016 Rio Games, including her daughter Avery struggles in the first grade. When Jeanette hires Erica Brewer, a popular mommy blogger, to tutor Avery, it seems like a perfect solution. Jeanette gets to put her training first, Erica gets much needed income, and Avery spends her days in an idyllic, literally Instagrammable home. Jeanette and Erica become close, finding a sympathetic village in each other that's missing in their other relationships. But Jeanette grows increasingly reliant on outsourcing her childcare and Erica realizes her six-year-old student may be the ticket to her own rise to fame. As Erica's finances reach a tipping point, she puts Avery on display on her Instagram account, and by extension, Jeanette's shortcomings as a parent. Worse than the online scrutiny is the fear that Erica's right about who knows Avery best. With the Olympics rapidly approaching, Jeanette's in danger of faltering on her race or letting a gap widen between her and her daughter. Either way, she risks losing something irreplaceable. 
Name of Book Redacted, 85,000 Words, is an upmarket women's fiction, a book club novel that considers the complexity of ambition, selfhood after motherhood, and the judgment that follows when what's best for a parent and best for the child come into conflict. It may appeal to readers who love the complicated transactional relationship in such a fun age by Kylie Reed, feminist themes a la Megan Wolitzer, and the juicy readability of Like a House on Fire by Lauren McGrayer. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. Warmly, Jessica. Awesome, Carly. Okay, what was the word count in that and what did you think of it? So this one had a shorter word count, 272. This might come in as one of the shorter ones that we've actually got, maybe since we've been mentioning this while we record. Okay, so I I think this there is so much potential in this concept. I also feel like we're skimming over some really important things. So maybe, you know, this 272 word count maybe isn't working for us. But the most important question I have here, which is a big one, is it is never mentioned which sport that she is competing in in the Olympics. So how can I... I, as a reader, imagine her ambition if I have no idea what her passion is. And that's such an important part of a character. It seems kind of superficial just to mention like the Olympics, right? When it's like, actually, I don't even know how many events and sports there are at the Olympics. There's a lot, right? So that just felt so superficial, kind of like skim level to me where I just, I really needed to know more about her because that affects so much in terms of like her training and how much time things take and where she has to go to travel to train, you know, as somebody who has not nearly reached Olympic level of competition of being an athlete, but it spent my entire youth being an athlete. I I just felt like there was such a gap there in terms of how important that passion is to this character. So I made some notes here. So Kofi subscribers, you'll be able to kind of read my notes in, in more depth. But I also feel like you know, I think believability was a bit hard for me. And I think that's kind of what I was getting at here with the whole like Olympics and, you know, what is her passion? Because I just don't really believe that another woman that's only known her child for maybe like a year, less than a year, would really know her better than her mother, her own mother. That just seems so unrealistic to me. So that was a bit, that was a bit troubling to me. But I think this is so interesting at its core because I like reading about ambitious women. I think that there's so much here that you're trying to cover in terms of different types of women, right? Like whether it's more like the stay-at-home mommy blogger influencer versus like an athlete mother. I think those are interesting characters to kind of cover, but I just felt like this was a bit superficial for the query letter, which makes me think that the query letter is just a bit short and you have some room here to, to play around and kind of go deeper. And I wouldn't say go deeper into the themes, but go deeper into what it is that makes these characters tick a little bit in terms of what's at stake here. Because I do think we have something at stake here for our Olympics character, but I don't believe it, right? Because I'm like, what sport does she even play? Like, I don't know, right? So anyway, I think you have some more room here and you know it. So let's just dive in a bit more. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was in those opening pages? So our opening pages is where we meet our two mother characters. They are on both on the playground with their various children. Jeanette is witnessing, the athlete character is witnessing the mommy blogger character interact with her children. Our athlete character lost her husband. So she's kind of witnessing the other family playing and there's a dad and she's kind of, you know, a bit sad watching another dad play with their child. They get into a dialogue really quickly, kind of getting to know each other. We learn that the mommy bloggers husband lost his job. So we know that they're a bit hard for cash right now, which is obviously planting the seed for some of the things that we saw in the query letter. And we just kind of see these two moms interacting. Just for our listeners, is this a third person omniscient that we're getting both characters' perspectives in one scene or are we seeing alternating scenes in, in first person? 
This is third person. It doesn't feel, it feels close. Yeah, I'd say close third person. But so far, I feel like Jeanette's the main character. So, so far, I feel like, yeah, close on, close third on Jeanette. Okay, wonderful. Okay, what did you think of the pages? Okay, so as I said with the queer letter, I like this idea so much. You know, our first line is, it wasn't that the other family didn't belong at the playground. They belonged too much. You know, there's some really nice sentences here, but I'm still feeling like how, and because this is this, you know, this third person, I really don't understand how Jeanette feels about these, about these other characters necessarily. Does she feel kind of competition or like camaraderie or where is the kind of the tension and the imbalance in this scene other than the fact that you know that is kind of a nuclear family with like a mom and a dad and two kids versus like she's just like a mom and a daughter family that's kind of the only imbalance I was just waiting for more imbalance right because I do like the such a fun age comp I think that's a really good comp and I was just waiting for some more of those vibes here and I didn't really get it I think I was just looking for a bit more voiciness a bit more opinion from Jeanette I think I kind of craved I craved that quite a bit there's some really you know as I said you know, anybody that's looking at the Kofi notes that I make, you'll see what I really liked about this. But I think my biggest issue is the dialogue is quite just average, you know, like what is special about this conversation? This is just two moms at the park, you know, it's like, I've been a mom at the park, you know, it's like, we just, what do you chit chat about? It's like the weather, what you guys are up to, your families, like, I don't know, I just felt it so superficial and average that again I was waiting for where the imbalance in this opening scene was and I just never found it so I think there's a huge opportunity there to to work on the dialogue because I think the other parts are much stronger than the dialogue the dialogue really seemed to serve the whole purpose of like let's get these two characters meeting let's explain their financial situations and like let's just have a fast friendship but I didn't really feel like the fast friendship was earned so I felt like the prose writing here was just stronger than the dialogue. Thanks, Carly. And I can imagine all of our listeners out there going, oh my God, there are people who meet Carly at a children's park who don't know she's an agent and who chit chat about the weather instead of pitching her their books. This is madness, madness. Okay. So this is not to say start stalking Carly at the playground. Okay. Cece. (laughs) All right. Cece, would you like to read us your next query letter? As Carly was discussing the importance of specifying the sport, I kept thinking if I had gotten the query letter, I hope I would have caught that because it's really important. But whenever I talk about sports, it's always like, go sports. I don't know anything about sports. (laughs) Anyway. Okay. Dear Cece, thank you, Bianca and Carly, so much for all the words of encouragement and wisdom that your podcast provides. I'm a devoted listener and promoter to anyone who will listen. Cece, your ever-poignant curiosity and drive to help authors strengthen their writing draw me to you. Given your interest in high-concept sci-fi, thrillers in the vein of the push, and mother-daughter relationships, I am excited to share with you my debut adult speculative thriller, The Stranger in My Rearview, complete at 74,000 words. This novel melds the compulsive pacing and tone of Laura Dave's The Last Thing He Told Me, with the reality questioning and complexities of motherhood in Helen Phillips' The Need, set in a dark and quirky Eureka-style town. Rose has a newborn, a husband in a coma, and a set of strange eyes peering back at her in her rearview mirror. She's not sure if it's her sleep deprivation or reality, given that she lives in the city, a clandestine government location where great minds create unimaginable possibilities. A city where she works as a surreal designist, the weather rains fruit and candy, and an AI house doubles as her babysitter. A city which also forbids cell phones and any connection with the outside world. 
When visions of the stranger bleed into her reality and point to a connection with her husband's accident, Rose begins to hunt to decipher their meaning. As she collects clues from these visions, she draws closer to the truth about what happened to him. However, her search poses a threat to her own safety as city officials want her to stop interfering. If she doesn't discover the purpose of these visions before she's caught and while her husband is alive, she risks losing him and her newborn forever. I'm a recovering academic librarian turned dermatologist, and I've been an avid fiction writer for over 20 years. In the past five years, I've completed six novels as I've worked towards finding my truest voice. When my husband underwent neurosurgery to remove a brain tumor while our son was only two years old, my idea for Rose and her plight formed. I'm an active member of Twitter's 5am Writers Club and Mom's Writers Club. When I'm not chasing after my now three major, you can find me writing and fighting a hopeless battle against a honey bear addiction. My complete manuscript is available. May I send it your way? Sincerely, contact redacted. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what kind of word counts are we looking at and what did you think? This is around 400 words. It is an excellent query letter. Like, absolutely excellent. The first paragraph made me... I literally wrote on the margins, like, this is such a strong paragraph. Now I can't wait to read more of the query letter. Give me, give me, give me. Like, it just very curiosity inducing, very well written, very polished. I love it. When I first read a set of strange eyes peering back at her, I was like, wait, literally? And then your paragraph answered me my question right away. Yes, literally, because it's possible that in this town where, you know, it rains fruit and candy, like that is a possible thing. And I wanted to know, like, wait, so if it is real or could be real, then what are her theories as to who put the eyes there and what, like, why they're watching her? And I don't mean this in the query letter, but these are already questions that I started asking about the plot. And this is excellent. This is what you want. You want your reader asking specific story forward questions. Yeah, I, I thought this was a really, really interesting hook. I will say that when I got to the part where the driving force of the book seems to be her visions, then I took a pause and I said, okay. This is going to be one of the situations where the author is doing an incredibly risky thing, high risk, high reward. And of course, it it, it might work. But when the protagonist's driving forces are visions, then the protagonist typically has no agency or has less agency just because the visions can come whenever, wherever. And, and so, so much of it is going to be writing on the execution. I personally need my protagonists to have a lot of protagonism. It's a matter of taste. So I am curious to see how how the author is going to do this. We'll also say that I have all the respect for people in the 5 a.m. Writers Club. The only reason is I am up at 5 a.m. is because I cannot sleep. Being up at 5 a.m. sounds horrible. Don't know how, how everyone does it. I, I have two morning people in front of me right now, both Bianca and Carly are morning people. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, we, we are weird. Not as weird as, as the night owls, though. Right. Okay. So, Cece, what was in those opening pages and what was your take on them? So, chapter one, Ben's room. That's the stamp we get in the beginning. And so our protagonist is crossing the bridge. She's driving her daughters in the back seat asleep. And she's so relieved that her daughter is asleep. It makes everything easy or easier, I should say. Then she sees the eyes, right? Like she sees a face and then the face closes in on the eyes in the rearview mirror. And... A car honks past her. All these things happen. She swerves back in the lane. And, you know, then she goes, okay, well, I have to just move forward. She arrives at the hospital room. It's her husband's hospital room. He's in a coma. Luis rolls into her cart. And, you know, we know that Luis knows her. Unfortunately, she's too late to talk to the doctors. She 
gives her a snack because she hasn't been eating. She forgets to pack food. She hasn't been sleeping either. She tells herself she has to remember all the good about her husband so she doesn't lose him. Then we have a little bit of chapter two where she arrives at the house. It's called the house that Jacob keeps. And there's a little bit of world building about the city, but all done really well through emotionality, not explaining. And the AI house, you know, greets her and she says, shush, you know, the baby's sleeping. So the AI house starts speaking in a lower tone and AI house presses her to actually do some work, even though she's too tired and she decides she might as well do it because the house will not stop asking. So that is what happens. Wonderful. Okay. What did you think of those opening pages? So I want to say that this is very very well done. And there's a lot that's working here. For me, what's missing, and this is an incredible matter of our taste, so like the author should not listen to me unless it makes sense, is that when the eyes show up, her reaction isn't as intense as I think it needs to be. Writing intense reactions, writing these visceral moments where you are terrified, where like, someone jumps in front of you, eyes show up in your rearview mirror, a gun appears. These moments of panic and shock and, you know, whatever else you're feeling, it is hard because you don't have all the resources that other mediums do, right? Like the, 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 the loud sounds, the, the, the fade to black, the whatever it is, you have to keep using the words. And so the way it's currently done, after she sees the eyes, the first line is, a car honks past me with someone pumping their fist out the window. To me, the calibration is off. Yes, there's a line right afterwards where she says, I swerved back in my lane. And then there's a little bit of, of reaction, hands trembling and pulse drumming in my ears. But the order of that is just off for me. You are in a car with your newborn and all of a sudden you see a face and then eyes in the rear view mirror. She, she turns. She turns to see if there's someone next to her baby. Her, the panic has to come first, right? Like the whole a car honks past me, it, it has to be something that she's noticing third or fourth. And that messed with the emotionality. Also, and here are questions I have. So I know based on the query letter that she she's living in the city where she's not allowed cell phones and nobody knows about the city. So I'm assuming that whoever's at the hospital doesn't know about her reality, doesn't know that she lives in this futuristic cool city. If that is the case, I would like some clues about that with her emotionality about how she feels about having to hide it. So for example, when she's talking to Luis, in addition to the cute little interaction they have, Luis could ask her like, come on, don't you want to get a cell phone? And she would have to like lie and pretend because she's obviously, she has to. I would like that. I would like a little bit more of that to tease out the pressure she's under having to navigate having to leave the city to see her husband in a coma, which I assume is a valid reason to leave as it pertains to the city officials' opinions. But at the same time, she still has to, you know, maintain her cover. So I needed more on that. I needed more on the fact that she is maintaining her cover. I think this just needs like two or three more layers, but it's really good. It's really good. You should be really proud of your of your pages. Thank you so much for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, let's do the last query letter. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, I'm querying you because your no shit teaching has given me more tasks requiring more time than those requested by my wife with countless revisions and scene arrangements for which I am grateful. While this may not match your preferred genres, your insights will benefit anyone, especially me and your support of debut authors. His half-century adolescence is a social novel of 95,000 words about coming of age in the late 20th century America in the shadow of Vietnam and race relations with foreshadowing of the gay rights movement. Ricky Samuels is a nerdy middle-class boy puzzled by life. 
searches for a place in the world that seems to deny one, as does Cyril Avery, a gay Irishman on the parallel searches in The Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne, or British schoolboy Chris Lloyd in Julian Barnes's Metro World. His father's sudden death shatters Rick's planned life in law and politics. The U.S. Army derails his efforts to regain his footing and resume his planned journey to adulthood, drafting him at age 21. As a lonely soldier, he marries unwisely. Following divorce, five years in France and Italy, circumnavigating the world through Asia, he attends graduate school to add focus to his thwarted search for a meaningful life path, meeting his second wife. His 21-year marriage, a stab at normal life, abruptly ends with his wife's demand for divorce. Their marriage revealed a charade when her boyfriend arrives in his Porsche two weeks after the final decree. Completing two years as a single parent, he renews his travels in America, falling in love with a woman from Asia without the anticipated happy ending, mortal avatars for Aphrodite, Hermes, and Athena help to achieve his goals of a loving, traveling, and hint of wisdom. Unlike Avery and Lloyd, who return from continental Europe to their places of origin, Samuels finds maturity of independence, of place and plan, welcoming an uncertain future with anticipation. This book targets those who followed a conventional path but wondered about the alternative, as well as millennials who have heard about the 60s and 70s with curiosity. I am an American living in Singapore with graduate degrees in economic and Russian studies and a half-century membership in the Society of Professional Journalists. I have published short stories in Whiskey Blot, Dance Macabre, and Bewildering Stories, forthcoming. Besides active accounts on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, I own a domain that mirrors my Twitter handle and a WordPress blog to reactivate as an author blog. I'm a lifetime member of the University of Michigan and the University of Maryland Alumni Associations, reaching hundreds of thousands of alumni. Looking forward to sharing the rest of the complete manuscript with you and discussing next steps on this project. And note, the query letter above is 460 words because of my effusive 57-word paragraph. Best regards, Sam Kaplan. Thank you, Sam, for providing that. Okay, Carly, what was your take on that? All right. Yes, I was going to say as well. Thank you, Sam. You read our minds. Okay, so first of all, I mean, I know that everybody is supposed to write in Times New Roman, but this person did include my favorite font, which is Garamond. So that did make me smile. Um, Okay, so first of all, I do have to point out the sexism in paragraph one. I mean, saying that, you know, women in your life create work for you is a little bit trite. So, you know, I'm just letting you know that stood out to me. Okay, so now to the technicalities of the project. So when you're writing your title, try to always include it in all caps. So you just italicized yours. So try to just make it all caps. So the next thing, you call this a social novel, which I found kind of interesting. Like to me, this is just literary fiction. In your next paragraph, you do include some comps. So I think maybe just literary fiction and the comps cut out the social novel bit. You know, I have some notes in here for you just about like what to include, like where to include the hook instead of just some of the generalized themes. But I definitely get the literary fiction vibe. So I would just kind of lean into that category. So a lot of this is very synopsis heavy. And I understand for literary fiction, fiction, sometimes it isn't as plot focused or hook driven, which I understand, but every book has a plot, right? Every book has a hook. And so this is quite meandering in this search for meaning in life. You're leaning into it in a good way, but I would just try to find, you know, what is unique about this journey for meaning in life, because I think that's just not coming through on the pages here. You're also covering a lot of time, right? Like I'm getting the sense we're covering at least I don't know, gosh, at least like 30 years of this character's life. That's a lot of time, right? So like, what are we skipping? What are we including? Why? I just have some some questions about that. 
I do, I, I was a little bit confused about the mention of Aphrodite and some of those other gods. I was like, is this real? Is this imagined? I don't know. Maybe I just missed kind of how this was functioning in a literary sense. But I, I just all of a sudden thought, was this supposed to be real that he's meeting these people? And if so, that's kind of, that's a different, that's a different book. I do actually like um, the mentioning of the alumni associations because I think they're kind of an underutilized tool in terms of author marketing. It's not that I think every novelist needs to kind of lean into their marketing and their query letter by any means, but just as a reminder to everybody, your alumni associations and your alumni connections are really strong because alumni magazines love to shout about authors. Thank you, Carly. Okay, what was in those opening pages? Okay, so we start in the point of view of our, our child character. It's it's third person, but we're kind of we're dropping right into when they are a child. So we have Ricky interacting with some kind of children in the neighborhood. He talks about kind of a girl that beats him up when he is like four and she's six or something like that. He talks about, you know, the kids that he's playing with and the kind of fights that he gets into as a child. We also have some mentions of like what's going on in the time period. We're told it's the 50s. So we're kind of the story is very infused with like what's happening in the moment and what are kind of some trends and some brands and that sort of thing during this time learning about you know when soldiers came home from the war and the houses that they were able to buy for ten thousand dollars cover yours everybody back then you could buy a house for ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars so really just steeping us in in the 50s here wonderful okay did those pages do the heavy lifting all right so I think, you know, as my big picture note here, I am concerned about how much time we're covering. As I said, like now, now that we're starting with the child's point of view, I'm like, okay, so we're we actually covering like 50 years of this character's life. I'm just, it seems very meandering to me, but I really liked this opener. So it says, intimate, visceral, savage. Sharon Galicia grasped his ginger curls in her fingers and pounded his five-year-old head against the hickory tree in Ricky Samuel's debut relationship with a girl. Not that I think that children should be portrayed as being in relationships, but I just love that it was just like, I don't know, this kid just getting in fights with other children um, at a young age was just a very kind of amusing opener to me. I think there's a lot here that that is really working. Like, I think this person is a literary author. I think there are elements of this where I didn't always know what was going on. And I also think that we weren't really sticking to a need to know basis in terms of the information that was being given to us. There was just a lot of information coming at us all the time. Whereas with literary fiction, I think this, this author has some chops, but I think that we need to like languish in the moments a little bit more. We were just like moving so fast in terms of the information that was being thrown at us from the children that they were playing with to like what was going on in the, in the current moment, a lot of names being thrown at us. Um, this character also, we jumped from like when they were five to then all of a sudden, maybe when they were, teenagers so there's yeah a lot of a lot of jumping around we also were learning a lot about all the other people in this character's life whereas if this is our main character I really want to know more about them whereas I feel like all we're learning about is all these other children and all these other people in in this character's life so that was something that that stood out to me a little bit but I I think this I think this author has some chops I think it's literary fiction for sure awesome Carly thank you thank you to you both for these critiques and now let's go to today's guest my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. 
They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's gonna be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're gonna have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. We're doing a really special episode today focusing on nonfiction for our listeners who write nonfiction and have been asking for more of a focus on that. And today we have two guests. So Cyril Connell Sanders is a teacher and freelance writer based out of Worcester, Massachusetts. Her work is dedicated to creating conversations around food, women and education. After being disheartened by the lack of representation for women in local radio, Sarah began producing 
Pop It, a podcast and radio show dedicated to elevating women's voices. She was a member of Leadership Worcester's Class of 2018. She was named Worcester's Best Columnist in 2019. And this year she appeared on Worcester Business Journal's 40 Under 40 list. As a Worcester Public Library Foundation trustee, Sarah has helped secure over $4.3 million for the renovation of the children's room. Her dedication to public art has contributed to more than 100 installations across the city of Worcester, and her work has appeared in a whole bunch of magazines. She's also been a Massachusetts public school teacher for 13 years. The second guest is James M. Lang, who writes about higher education, literature, and travel. He's a professor of English and director of the Demur Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption University. His books include Distracted, Small Teaching, and Small Teaching Online, and Cheating Lessons. His work has appeared in multiple newspapers and magazines, including Time, the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, The Conversation, and more. He received a Fulbright Specialist Award in 2016 and has consulted for the United Nations on the development of educational materials on ethics and integrity. He has a PhD in English from Northwestern University and a BA in English and Philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. It's my pleasure to welcome Sarah and James. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You make us sound pretty good. <laughs> Listen, your your credentials are amazing. It's like, I'm like, what the hell have I been doing with my life, man? Right. So before we begin, for our listeners, we're going to be discussing a book called Small Teaching K8, Igniting the Teaching Spark with the Science of Learning. Now, James, could you just take us through a bit of the backstory about how this book came to be before we dive into a whole bunch of questions that I have about writing nonfiction? The long story of this book is that I started writing for a magazine called The Chronicle of Higher Education early in my career as a faculty member at a Assumption University. I would write columns about my life as a faculty member in higher education. And as a result of that, I began to get interest from publishers in writing books. And so I had written a couple of books for university presses about teaching and learning or about sort of being a, a, an academic in America. And those books had done okay. And so in 2013, I published a book called Cheating Lessons. And that kind of had a little bit more, a little get a little more publicity for my writing. In 2016, I was able to connect with a, a commercial publisher, Wiley, a big sort of a conglomerate of uh, nonfiction imprints, and wrote a book called Small Teaching, which was just a very simple argument that teachers could pay better attention to the small decisions they make in the classroom instead of worrying about sort of big revolutionary ideas that administrators were kind of always showing, shoving down their throats or trying to like adapt the newest innovations in education. And that, that book seemed to strike a chord with people. As a result, I got a lot of invitations to speak at colleges and universities across the world. And this is sort of a good lesson for nonfiction writers. I accepted all of them, even though this was a really challenging thing for me to do. I had five kids. I still do. And I had a job, but I just, I wanted the book to be successful. So I used these opportunities to speak, to get word out about the book. And as a result, the book was very successful. It sold a lot of copies. And as a result of that, the publisher was interested in going forward with more books about this idea of small teaching. So in 2019, we actually, I was giving a speech at another university and someone asked me a question, how do you use these techniques in online courses? And I said, 
I don't really know because I don't teach online, but if someone wants to write that book, I'll help them. <laughs> and a person literally came up to me after the QA and said, I want to write that book. And so I said, okay, great. So we worked on that together, came out six months before the pandemic, <laughs> at which point everyone needed to learn how to teach online. So again, that was just like a good, like a stroke of luck. But then again, again, that book was successful. And as a result, I started looking around for someone who would be able to translate the ideas into the elementary and middle school context. And I was aware of Sarah's work because she wrote for publications here in Worcester. I was an admirer of her work. And so I reached out to her to see if she might be interested in doing this. And she was. Amazing. So all the stars aligned. And we say on the show that publishing takes a lot of hard work, but also quite a bit of luck. And it is amazing when you manage to beat the trend. You come out with something ahead of when people need it, and that's just awesome. Okay, so diving into writing nonfiction, James, could you tell us, did you need an agent along the way? At what point did you get an agent? How integral was that to the whole process? I wanted to have an agent from early in my career. I thought this was the right thing to do, that you had to have an agent to get nonfiction books published. Um, so I tried to, but I wasn't successful with that. And so I, I went just to myself to smaller publishers or university presses. And many of those publishers, you don't need to have an agent to approach those editors. And so my first book was published by a small independent press. The next two were, the next three actually for, were from university presses. If you look on those presses' uh, websites, it'll tell you exactly who to write to, what are the specialties of the acquisition editors. And so you don't have to have an agent for those kinds of works. As a result of the fact that small teaching was so successful, I became attractive <laughs> to agents. So going after that book and I wanted to write the next one, I reached out to several agents and they all said yes. So at that point, it made sense for me to use an agent. I have had an agent for the last two books that I've written since small teaching. Yeah, it is amazing how after you have overwhelming success, how easy it is to get the agent after that, right? Yeah. Okay. So Sarah, could you tell us a bit in terms of writing a book like this. How important is the proposal up front? How long does that take? Did you have to put one together? We did. And I was really lucky. I remember getting advice or hearing advice rather from a writer I respect, Anne Friedman. And she said, reach out to other authors that you respect and they probably have too much on their plate. And when they're looking for somebody to pass things off to, you can be in the back of their mind. And so connecting with Jim was wonderful. And then when this opportunity came along, he said, this is really a done deal. It's just kind of a formality that we have to put together a proposal, but why don't you do it? Like that would be a great entry point for you. And it's a great way for me to see your vision for the book. So we talked about the target audience. They wanted a lot of citations in the actual proposal the subject of the book and why it was important to me and what made it relevant right now, the channels and platforms that we were going to use to promote the book. That was really important. And I am very adept at social media, or I like to think so anyway. And so that was something that we emphasized. Opportunities to include the book in your business. Now I'm a teacher, but kind of looking at that through the educational lens I have tons and tons of people in my network who are also teachers and teacher leaders and might be interested in purchasing the book. And so that was attractive. They also asked about any events that I had spoken at in the recent past. And then my favorite questions were like, 
tell us why your book is better than the other books on the market that tackle the same subject. And so I did like a deep competitive analysis, which was really informative for me because I was just starting to actually write the copy for small teaching K to eight. And the last thing they ask is like, what do you want the book to look like? And imagine holding your printed book in your hands and like, how big is it? What is the paper like? What it, and that for me was so fun because I've wanted to write a book since I was 10 years old. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard that this is an arduous process, that it can take months, that the document is almost as long as the actual book ends up being. Is that what it looked like? It definitely wasn't as long as the actual book, but they did want an extensive outline. And I really had the benefit of looking at Jim's original small teaching, which was targeted more at college professors and scaling it to K-8 educators. And so I already had an outline in the works. I have to say also that I would say about proposals is some of my books, the proposals have been 50 pages. So this is a really, really important document. And all those parts that Sarah mentioned, the, the big part typically is the chapter outline. And so if you've got a 10 chapters book, that might be 10 to 20 pages because you've got to have several paragraphs for each chapter. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can't even write a summary for my fiction. So this sounds like a lot of hard work. Okay. So Jim, okay. You've discussed the publisher that you went to. It's one that you had already published with. So it made sense that you went with that. Can you tell us a bit about the publisher and what else they publish in case we have listeners who are interested in pitching them? Yeah. So the publisher is called Josie Bass. As you know, there are lots of imprints typically with larger publishers. Uh, so they are a division of, of Wiley and Wiley does a lot of stuff in education. This particular imprint is typically focused on higher education. And so that's how I sort of connected with them. They have a lot of sort of advice oriented kinds of books in higher education. So you definitely can look and see the easiest way for me to recommend the best way to people to approach publishers in their area of nonfiction sort of area of interest is look at the books that you have, right? And the, go to bookstores and look into the parts of, actually go to the book a bookstore, look at like the uh, the shelves that are dedicated to your subject matter and just write down the names of publishers uh, in that area. And you'll get a good sense from one trip to the bookstore of like what places you should be submitting your work to. So you can also do that online, obviously, but I think it's kind of interesting to, to go to a bookstore and actually see like, okay, which are the books that are really actually getting into sh shelves in bookstores? And something you said earlier was interesting. You said you got invited to a whole bunch of different places to speak. And so you said yes to all of those opportunities. Now, I know our listeners are going to be wondering, are these costs that you had to cover yourself? Was it something your publisher helped cover? Or was it a case of when you get an invitation, they cover the costs for you? Typically for these, especially when you're talking to colleges and universities, they typically are able to not only cover costs, but also offer you an honorarium. So typically I was actually getting paid for um, these kind of speaks because I was giving like lectures to, for example, groups of faculty members and universities have a budget to cover that kind of thing. So it depends on what kind of your, your area is. But early on, I was willing to do things for free, essentially, because I, you have to do that kind of thing. You have to sort of pay your dues. But at this point now, people definitely will cover my costs and offer me honorariums as well. 
Yeah, as they should. People should be getting paid for their expertise. But for our listeners, keep in mind that nonfiction and fiction are very different. When it comes to fiction, so many publishers post-COVID are stopping book tours, which they were doing before because they've realized that they can still market a book without incurring the cost of sending an author out all over the place. And so when it comes to that, an author in fiction is generally funding a lot of their own travels if that's what they plan to do. Now, Jim, I mean, I read your qualifications and Sarah's qualifications. They're they're really impressive. So here's the thing. Anyone can write fiction because I say on the podcast that writing fiction is sitting with your imaginary friends and making shit up. But this is the complete opposite of that, right? So not any schlub can sit down and go, I am writing this nonfiction how-to book. I mean, qualifications are hugely important. Can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, both Sarah and I are actual teachers. And so we, first of all, have our classroom experience. But the other really thing that's really important was the research that we did. This came about because I kind of got interested in how do people learn? And so, and I'm coming from a bag, background of English literature. So like, I'm not a scientist, but I just became interested in sort of what happens in our brain when we're trying to learn something. And I spent several years combing through like scientific articles about the brain and neuroscience and cognitive psychology and so you have to be willing to put in that work. Most nonfiction books will be better if you have some personal experience that you can bring into the narrative, but that's not enough. Most publishers, unless you're a really famous person, you can't just give advice based on your personal experiences. You have to bring like research into it. And so that is a really essential part. And you have to be able to show that expertise to the publisher to say, you know, I've either done this research or have this unique experience or um, I've interviewed a bunch of people, and Sarah's very good about that, actually, interviewing people to talk, experts who can bring their um, their knowledge to, to the project. Well, yeah, so let's go straight to that, Sarah, before I ask my next question of you. In terms of the that interviewing, how does that work? Because you're asking other people for their expertise in terms of incorporating what they say in the book, how much needs to be Do you have to pay them for that? Do you have to include their names in the book? What does that process look like? Yeah, in terms of the interviews, I had the benefit of writing for magazines for the last five years. So I had met so many fascinating people. And one of my columns for a long time was just a QA. and a And so anyone that would come into our city, sort of like the way that I met you, who I would sit down and do an interview with for our local newspaper or the arts and culture magazine, I had them already in my contacts list. And so it was really easy to reach back out and say, hi, we met. Remember, we got coffee. Here's the article I wrote about you. I want to talk to you about how this might apply to the science of learning. And I did not compensate anyone, but I did provide everybody who really went above and beyond with their time a copy of the book. And I certainly gave them credit. Yeah, so so that would be very important. And just coming back to something Jim said earlier is for those of you out there, we're not saying that you need a doctorate or a PhD or whatever to write this kind of book because perhaps you run a podcast on 80s music and you have no qualifications, but you have a ton of listeners. You are considered somewhat of an expert when it comes to 80s music because of the podcast, etc. So that is considered an expert in the field as well. All right. So Sarah, can you take us through the process of writing the book? How long did it take? Were you and Jim sitting together in a room? Were you backwards and forwards in with it? How did all of that unfold? 
Sure. So we definitely sat down in coffee shops on multiple occasions. And a lot of it was that we could check in and he could give me feedback and notes. But I was working off his original manuscript and then trying to update the research so that it connected with my audience, which was K-8 to educators. We started the process in May of 2021, and I literally just took his book and did the math. And I was like, all right, here are the deadlines that I personally need to hit. I hung a calendar over my desk and a lot of the writing, which I guess is sort of unique, I did in my classroom after school. And I'd be like, okay, you can't go home until you've checked this off. You need to finish up this theory section or this model section. Our deadline was November. So I did a ton of writing all summer. We would meet up or we would do a weekly Zoom call. But in mid-October, for the first time ever, Jim ghosted me. He didn't show up to one of our meetings. And I guess I would have probably thought more about it, but I went home and that same day I found out I was pregnant. So it was like all this personal stuff is going to happen while you're writing a book. Now it turned out that Jim needed an emergency heart transplant. And so his family reached out to me a few weeks later and they're like, hey, here's what's going on. The adversity you've overcome, Jim, is amazing. And even more amazing is after his heart transplant, I feel like you were in contact like two weeks later saying, so how's the book going? (laughs) But the publisher was really supportive during that time. And they said, hey, why don't you, let's give him some space, obviously. And we don't want to be disrespectful and continue on with this process without him. I felt like I needed him as my mentor in the process. But they said, why don't you reach out to some practitioners and expand the book? And so I spoke with three really remarkable teachers during that time. And I think those extended interviews are what makes the book so special and will make it resonate with teachers. So in March, we had two peer reviewers who gave me feedback. So those were teachers, academics that were able to provide positive feedback. And so we kept moving on with a developmental edit. During the developmental edit, I went into labor a month early, and so then Jim kind of picked up the pieces. So it was so nice to have two writers on this project because we really did bounce the work back and forth based on the personal circumstances that came up. Later that month in June, we reviewed a copy edit. Then we received the final proofs at the end of the summer to review, had just like a couple more tweaks. A lot of them had to do with formatting. And then in November of 2022, I actually held the book in my hand for the first time. All in all, it took one and a half years and there were a lot of obstacles along the way, but we made it through and I'm so proud of our book. Yeah, geez. And and that's something to be said for all writers, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, you will have this plan and you'll go, I will finish by this day and then life happens. And you're going to have to pivot and you've got to kind of work around that. Sarah, you said that you had those conversations, extended conversations with three teachers. Were those ones that were planned all along or were they ones that happened because Jim was in hospital and you weren't able to chat with him? They were individuals that I had already incorporated in the book, at least two of them. One was the teacher of the year. One is a teacher in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard University is located. She's at a very prestigious elementary school. And I just expanded the interviews so that it was a lot more in-depth. And it was almost like an application section at the end of the three larger sections of the book. 
The third individual was a kindergarten teacher, and that was a connection from the publisher. They said, we really wanted this guy. We were trying to get him to sign a book deal with us, but he signed with somebody else. We still want to keep him in our good graces and in our portfolio. Would you talk to him? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll talk to him. And then he ended up being just amazing. And kindergarten, I think, is a different animal than, say, eighth grade. And so having somebody in that early elementary area, and I've taught third through eighth, but I had never taught kindergarten before, that was really wonderful. Yeah, and it's also wonderful when these kinds of things come up because you can plan as much as you like, you can structure as much as you like, but you need to leave room for these kinds of things to happen because imagine if you hadn't allowed room for that, had the conversation with them, it was amazing, and you're just like, okay, well, we haven't got room to include that. So that's a lesson for nonfiction and for fiction. Okay, Jim, so you spoke a bit about the research already. For the both of you, the important thing here in the proposal was making sure that this book stood out from others on the market. And Sarah, you said you did a lot of research. And Jim, you clearly did a lot of research with the preceding books to make sure that it was really standing out. So can you speak a bit about that to make sure that you are addressing a need in the market? Yeah, so that's a really that's a good way to put it. What is the need here? Because oftentimes you might have a good idea or you have an area of expertise and you say, okay, I have something to say. But when you start looking around, you realize, okay, actually other people have had to say that. <laughs> I've said this, right? So then you have to say, okay, how can I change what I have to say or I have to find something distinctive about my approach? And, you know, there's some things I think they're kind of evergreen topics and so that, that are important for people to keep remembering but you have a different, you can find a different angle to come into a, like a, a, an important area. Teaching and learning, for example, we know that active learning is important. <laughs> People learn from getting their hands dirty and sort of working with stuff and speaking about it and writing. We've known that for a long time. At the same time, teachers need to be continually giving new ideas about how they can engage with those kinds of practices. So as long as you can find like a little entry point that's a little bit different from everybody else's entry point, and small teaching is just an example of that, right? Small teaching is just a very simple phrase <laughs> that explains something that most people know, essentially, and, they, and I think it resonates with people. Yeah, I should be doing that stuff um, and paying attention to my small decisions. But it's just having that little entry point is enough oftentimes, as long as it's a, an important topic. The other way to do it is to say, okay, I've got something that's completely new here, right? I've got a, an idea to kind of revolutionize things. And so that's another way you can do that. But Sometimes it's harder to come up with those kinds of ideas or make them stick. So you really have to think about what's what the, the field looks like. And then where is your sort of point that's going to be different from everybody, from everybody else's? And I know Sarah did a lot of research on this as well. Yeah, the initial edition of small teaching was targeted at college professors. And that made a lot of sense to me, right? Like you might be a brilliant chemist, but you've never taught chemistry to a 19-year-old before. And so Jim was able to give really practical easy to apply advice to all of these college professors. But when they approached him about a K to eight book, I thought, well, teachers, like our expertise is teaching, right? It's not necessarily content expertise. In Massachusetts, you have to get a master's degree in education within five years to keep your license. And so coming up with an angle, I think was the most important part of making this project a reality. For us, I've always heard the statistics since the start of my career, like one in six teachers leave the classroom every year, which is a lot. But after the pandemic, it became 50% were quitting or transferring. And that's a, a lot. And so there was obviously a need 
So we looked at the science of learning and how we could leverage low effort, high reward practices to combat teacher burnout. And that kind of became the lens through which I saw each and every chapter. Amazing. And we've we've got a tiny bit of time left, but I wanted to pick your brain in terms of how you were leveraging social media along the way. On your advice, I reached out to some bookstagrammers, which has been great. I sent them copies of the book, like Craze Book Club. They're going to do some giveaways. I did a giveaway with my podcast, and I've been posting Instagram reels frequently that some of them hit. You get to see your statistics right away. But just keeping an eye on the analytics, you're able to register as a writer. At some point, Instagram prompted me and said, you look like you're a creative. Would you like a professional account? I said, yes. You say, I'm a writer. And then all of a sudden, the analytics become like out of control. You can see what time it's best for you to post and what hashtags are like effective. And so... I'm really enjoying kind of getting into the science of social media, although I heard Twitter had a terrible morning. So I think I'm going to allocate some of my energy that I've been putting into Twitter elsewhere. But Jim, you have this amazing Twitter following. What are you going to do? (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question. I'm still sort of in wait and see mode at this point, but it's a good sort of reminder of the fact that these things can change. You really have to think about sort of the principles instead of like focusing on a particular social media platform. What are you trying to do? You're trying to create space for your readers to contact and feel like they know you essentially, right? And so be able to respond to readers, promote new things. So you don't want to just promoting your book all the time. You want to give new things to readers to say like, here's a new study that just came out, but it relates to my book. So you have to think about the principles, giving new, new contact to your readers, giving them access to you as a, as a person and as an author, writing advice, all those kinds of things. So <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out how, what's going to happen here. But yeah, I, I try to go back to what I'm trying to do on social media. Yeah. And something that I've learned, and this applies to nonfiction and fiction authors, is that people want a face of the book. They want someone to interact with about the book because they fall in love with the book or what you've got to say, but then they want to hear from you. And so it's really important to be doing that. And I'm loving all of your videos on Instagram, Sarah. They've been awesome. Okay. So we're at the end of our time. For our listeners, we're going to put Small Teaching K-8 on our bookshop.org affiliate page. It makes a wonderful gift for the teachers in your life. So consider that as well. Jim and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your expertise. You bet. Thank you. Thank you, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, 
and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers? Some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line. Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.